0: This is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in its broader context. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, But who is my neighbor? A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went out to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied. The one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a classic melodrama. Like the Italian movie, Life is Beautiful, you have distinct characters, some of whom do the wrong thing. Some of whom do the right thing. And as the story unfolds, you have no doubt as the listener, as the watcher to that story, who does the wrong thing and who does the right thing. It's pretty obvious, even as you're listening to it, even if you've never heard it, seen the movie before, you know who's doing right and who's doing wrong. And you also... As you hear the story, know the difference between right and wrong. It's the way the story is set up. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the one who does the right thing represents all kinds of people, even God. Depending on how you read the story, think of Jesus. Jesus did not come to us as a well-dressed priest. Jesus did not come to us as a well-dressed rabbi. He came as a carpenter's son from up north. Think about it. This past Monday, John Hurley in Arvada, Colorado, intervened in what authorities say was probably going to be another mass shooting that is plaguing our country. The two headlines that I read on Tuesday went like this He is a true hero. Arvada police chief praises Samaritan killed in Old Town shooting. And Arvada police identify Good Samaritan killed in shooting. We are living in the middle of a melodrama. And so it is crucial in this place, if no other place, in this place, we tell the truth. and We tell the whole truth. When I was a child, my papa, my grandfather told me that the most important thing a man can learn is right from wrong. That's true, man, woman, or child. Learn the difference. Learn right from wrong. And then go and do it. Hold hands when you cross the street. Treat other people The way you want to be treated, and don't stick your tongue to frozen flagpoles. The problem, however, is that as we get older, right and wrong starts to blur, and it gets harder and harder to live according to a this and that worldview. It gets harder to know when it's time to speak. And when it's time to keep silent. Oh, just do the right thing. Just do good. Yeah, but sometimes it's hard to tell. When am I supposed to speak? When am I supposed to keep silent? But there are times when you can tell the difference. There are times. You know, Mark Twain said that the the thing that bothered him the most about the Bible was not the passages that he didn't understand, but the passages he did understand. Those are the times when we hear the beauty of Ecclesiastes that tells us that our lives are from the hands of God. And then along the way, we encounter wisdom and folly. That's where it gets sticky. Our hands are in the lives of God. Okay, Thanks be to God. But then, even in the hands of God, our lives encounter every day wisdom and folly, love and hate, war and peace, in most days, it's all happening at the same time all around us. A chapter after the time poem in Ecclesiastes 3, the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells this big truth in 4.6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after wind. And then just before that, immediately after the time poem that we started this worship service with in Ecclesiastes 3, after we say that there's a time for everything, here's what happens next. And we're going to be careful with the rest of Ecclesiastes 3 because it's a debate. It's a dialogue. It's not a linear start here, finish here, all means the same thing rest of Ecclesiastes 3 just doesn't work that way. Instead, listen to it, and the parts that he's talking about God, he's saying this is, this is where it's at. And then after that, I think what he's doing is that he's saying, even though we are acknowledging together that our lives are from the hands of God, we live in a world that acts like a world. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on humanity. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of everyone, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all your work. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that we will draw near. Whatever has already been and whatever will be has been before and God will call the past into account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed, I also thought. As for people, God tests them so that they may see that they're like the animals. Humanity's fate's like that of the animals. Same fate awaits them both. One dies, so the other dies. All have the same breath. People have no advantage over an animal. Everything is meaningless. All go from the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of a human rises upward and if the spirit of an animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy your work because that's your lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? You know what that's a perfect reflection of? Perfect, 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 perfect. Sunday and Monday. Ecclesiastes 3 has Sunday and Monday written all over it. A time to come together and say I love you in the name of the Lord. And a time to have to drive on Katy Freeway. It's all happening at the same time. It's all happening all around us. This is Sunday and Monday. God has made everything beautiful in its time, and everything is meaningless. Sunday, Monday. This is the most important section of Ecclesiastes because this section, right after the time poem in Ecclesiastes 3, is when the most important moment in Ecclesiastes. If we read Ecclesiastes as a story, even though there's been some foreshadowing in the first two chapters, because good stories do that, right? You got foreshadowing. Something's about to happen. Someone's about to come onto the stage. They're not quite there yet, but get ready. Something's about to happen. Ecclesiastes 3, right after the time poem, guess who shows up? God. God doesn't really show up in Ecclesiastes until chapter 3. And so if you get frustrated with the first two chapters, like, oh, this is just too negative, you miss the best part. Because it's right here. This is when God shows up. After the first two chapters of questioning the meaning of life and then coming to the conclusion that the things of the world do not have meaning, God shows up. God. Meaning. 3.11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. 313, eat, drink, find satisfaction in your work. This is the gift of God. So, Sunday and Monday. I believe in what I do because I think it's connected to the most important part of your life what I do for a living. We could talk about all kinds of things, and I could be your dentist. Your oncologist and your auto mechanic all wrapped into one. One person who'd do all those same things. But I'm not. I'm a preacher. That's my work. And I take satisfaction in it most of the time. I believe in what I do. I think it's the most important thing in the world. Especially in a world like this. In a world where the characters are exaggerated... Everyone's emotions are running high. I believe in what I do because it's connected to the most important part of your life. One time, Jen and I were with Cole, my wife Jen, son Cole, at the grocery store when he was like two or three years old. He rode in the shopping cart back when kids used to ride in shopping carts by the handle with the legs dangling out front. And some of that was on purpose because if we didn't, Cole would be up. He'd love to climb, so that was a good place to keep Cole. And he had to have been around, too. So he's riding along in the shopping cart, One of us turns one way to turn around to get something, one of us turns the other way. We look back and Cole is looking up at us with his tongue sticking out. And it's little, it's not horrible, but there's a little bit of blood on his tongue sitting there looking up at us. And we kind of looked at each other and looked around and we leaned down into him and said, Baby, what happened? And he looked up at us with his super blonde hair and big eyes and said, I don't know. And then we looked down into the shopping cart, and there in the shopping cart was a can. Of frozen concentrated orange juice and right in the middle of the metal plate on the end of the can of frozen concentrated orange juice was this tiny sweet precious little collection of taste buds <laughs> You didn't know what happened we did we knew what happened. And it's funny how things stick in your mind as a parent about your children. And I know that it's, it's kind of a cliche comparison, God, child, parent, child. But it, I think it works on so many levels because it was at that moment that we realized with this little life, that's in our hands, that it's our job to teach them right from wrong, danger from safe. And that's an important part when they're toddlers, little kids. But then they go to school, and then they start getting older. And then you have to start answering deeper questions than stay away from that can of frozen concentrated orange juice, then you have to start talking about what has meaning, what doesn't have meaning. A child doesn't know that he's not supposed to stick his tongue to a can of frozen concentrated orange juice or a flagpole on a cold winter day. But those of us who are adults are supposed to know better. We, like the epilogue to 1 Corinthians' love poem... We're supposed to look back and remember that when we were children, we spoke like children. We understood like children. But when we become adults, especially with the teachings of Jesus, we leave childish ways behind us. Folly is knowing the difference, but choosing to stick your tongue to the frozen can anyway. That's what Ecclesiastes and the whole wisdom tradition of Scripture calls folly. Folly is seeing the woman dying on the side of the road, whether bleeding or she's dying inside with a heart full of sorrow. But folly is seeing her and ignoring her. Choosing instead to go chase the wind. These days it seems like things have less meaning than they used to. Meaning just doesn't mean what it used to. What's the meaning of it all? It's like everything is meaning less. Wisdom is not only choosing the better, the things that have true meaning, but it's knowing the difference and then growing. And then God shows up. That's the beautiful part of this story, is that here we are, first two chapters for the past few weeks, and it's like listening to this, everything means less and less, but even in that world, God shows up. And wisdom is realizing that the things we thought were so meaningful back then were probably meaningless too, in the grand scheme of things. You ever done that? This is a trick question, so I'm just going to set it up that way. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at your life right now, looked back on something 10 years ago and said, that was meaningless? Anyone? Done that, right? It is realizing how meaningless it is to say things like, these days it seems like things have less meaning than they used to. That's meaningless too. And so I'm wondering... If we look back, say, 10 years ago on something personal and said, you know, that didn't have the meaning that I thought it did, then why do we get so caught up in the things that we're so caught up in today and we're so emotionally attached to today and go out of our way to defend this is right when... maybe we'll look back 10 years from now and say, hmm, wasn't as big as I thought it was. Not saying that's going to happen, but it could. And then God shows up and shows us what real meaning is. When Jesus tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example, he does not tell us that because we're going to find ourselves in that specific situation. And it's certainly not to get us to study parables and learn the history of Samaritans. Instead, it creates a truth for us. It creates a truth for our own story when we see those in trouble that we should help. It's not profound. It's wisdom. It's meaningful. The world, however, tells us to choose folly. Jesus' audience received the same exact message as Ecclesiastes' audience. You know what the message is? And I know, some of you might like this, some of you may not, but same message, Jesus and Ecclesiastes. You know what the message was? Your worldview is limited, and it's messed up. And your theology and your religion is limited, and it's messed up. And so... Ecclesiastes comes along and says, if you're living in that world where your worldview is limited and messed up and your theology is messed up and your religion is messed up and even the way you think about God sometimes is messed up, here's the way, here's the path. It's what Jesus did. It seems like, and I don't know, this is an exaggeration, this is something that preachers make up mid-sermon. It seems like a lot of times, 90% of the time, Jesus' audience is the religious establishment. And I think that who of you by worrying is just another way of saying everything is like chasing after the wind. But here's the good news part, here's the turning point. Then we sing and dance. We get to sing and dance for a moment, even as all of this stuff happens all around us. We sing and dance on Sunday, but we can also sing and dance on Monday, seeing that it's time to mourn, and it's time to dance, and sometimes we even do both at the same time. In the darkness, we turn on the light. When Roberto Benigni was asked about his movie, Life is Beautiful, and how How could he make a comedy set during the Holocaust? He said, and this is a quote, because laughter and tears come from the same part of the soul. This is the turning point in Ecclesiastes because it's when God shows up. After the first two chapters of questioning the meaning of life and sometimes even life itself and then coming to the conclusion that the majority of the things in this world to which we assign meaning are actually meaningless, after all that, guess who shows up? God. Meaning. We spend two chapters admitting the truth about this dark world. And just when we are ready to give up hope, God shows up. Jesus redeems us. Somehow, Jesus redeems us. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you're sitting out in the pew listening to this sermon as it begins to move into its conclusion. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm really happy for everyone, but I don't see how God could redeem me. And then the Good Samaritan walks by and stops and bandages our wounds. And Mom and Dad hold us as we sit crying in the shopping cart wondering why my tongue hurts. Because when God shows up, all you have to do is one thing. This is the message of Ecclesiastes and this is the message of Jesus' preaching. When God shows up, you have to do one thing, one thing only. You just have to say yes. And when we say yes to God, not our worldly perspectives about God, not that, and not religion and church and religion, but actually God, the real God, the living Jesus... When we say yes to God, then and only then do we begin to hear the most important part of Ecclesiastes 3, and it may be the best line in the whole shooting match. God has made everything beautiful in its time. All we have to do is open our eyes and see it, because God is right here before us, and that means some